The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the historian Tessa Dunlop, whose new book is Army Girls, The Secrets and Stories of Military Service from the Final Few Women Who Fought in World War II. Tessa, welcome. You've snagged 17 of these army girls who fought. Well, I mean, your subtitle says fought in World War II, but for mo- most people think Women didn't do all that much fighting in World War II, did they? Violet Zabo perhaps accepted? Violet Zabo indeed was an exception. She was a very rare exception insofar as she was a combatant. She was given a Sten gun and women could not be combatants. That was the one thing that War Office was absolutely adamant about. You know, even those big static anti-aircraft guns, if women fired them, it ceased to be a manly thing to do. We'll come to that in a bit if we may, Sam. But back to your point, if... We talk about a soldier in the British Army. We talk about him fighting. If he goes off to serve in the Gulf or if he serves in Afghanistan, he's out there fighting. Harry, for instance, he fought in Afghanistan and women were in operational areas. But you're right, they were non-combatants. But I think for large numbers of people, and I know that former Colonel Ali Brown is very big on this, the vast majority of people serving in the British Army, while perceived to be fighting, actually are not in frontline roles. Now, women who we think of having been fighting and serving in the British Army for decades now, in fact, only in 2018, were allowed in all areas of the British Army. So I felt that I was going to allow myself the word fight. We talk about fighting coronavirus. We use it quite loosely as a word. And therefore, I felt that these women, some of whom, I mean, just to look at the statistics, over 770 ATS girls, that's army girls alone, died in the Second World War. You may think that sounds like a piffling number, but let's compare it to the number of British armed casualties in the 10-year-long Afghanistan war, which we consider large, and it doesn't reach 500 personnel. So I think that, yes, they fought. When they died, they didn't win a combat medal, but they fought. And what were they doing for the most part? I mean, you've got a range of these women you interviewed. And, and you know, what were the sorts of things that women, if they weren't in frontline roles, what roles were they taking? This changed radically during World War Two. It probably won't surprise you to hear that the incumbents of uh, in political and military power at the beginning of the Second World War weren't focusing hugely on women, Sam. In fact, there was something of an inconvenience. It was recognised and we might need a few. And you know, this old stalwart, you know, Dame Ellen Gwynne Vaughan, who was sort of kicking around from the First World War, the first ever woman, in fact, to win a CBE, was asked to step forward in 1938 and set up this ATS, which is the Auxiliary Territorial Service. And it was initially to feed all three of the male services until the Wrens and the WAF, the Air Force and and Royal Navy female equivalents, broke away a little bit later on. But it was set up, and therefore this ATS reluctantly, 
And it was very much seen as a sort of second rate auxiliary, exactly what it said in the title, auxiliary service. And especially the one left of feeding the army, this ATS, had a reputation for really allowing women to do little more than be the men's dogs' bodies, you know, mopping up in the mess room and cooking their food. And it did suffer from a really bad image early on. That had to quite radically change. And one of the key reasons was the desperate state of anti-aircraft defence, AA Command, which had an extraordinary far-seeing general, General Frederick, Sir Frederick Pyle, who before the Second World War had realised he was going to need women to provide a roof over Britain. He didn't get his way, ironically, until after the Blitz. But really the Blitz, during the Blitz, AA command was found horribly wanting. People talk about the sort of reassuring roar of the guns, but they hit and managed to bring down really proportionally very few of the German bombers during the Blitz. So had we had more women, would we have had less Blitz? The second other thing holding back AA command was the technology, which came on a pace. There wasn't even radar being used at the beginning of the Second World War on the gun sites themselves. There was radar, obviously, out on the coast, but there wasn't on the gun sites letting them know. You used a spotter, literally a, a person would stand there with binoculars and say, enemy radar! That's how basic it was at the beginning of the war. So the technology wasn't sufficiently linked up. But Pyle himself continually lamented the state of his male recruits. And it was almost the more that the Air Force attracted young men, it was seen as, you know, you'll know this, that at the beginning of the Second World War, it was perceived that it would be one in the air, magical men in their flying machines, no matter what the death rate was, with their flying jackets and a spring in their step, it was where all men wanted, well, majority wanted to serve. And the inverse, of course, for AA Command, who wanted to stay back in Britain, you know, behind a static gun and watch shrapnel fall to the ground. Really dull. And as a result, it got... I mean, I have to be really careful because Royal Artillery, very sensitive, but Pyle himself lamented the dregs of the male serving men in the army that he received. I mean, he had some wonderful line that one in 25 had no thumbs, was in the latter stages of venereal disease, had a glass eye, you know, really sort of unfit to serve. But women at this point in the war, until April 1941, were not allowed in operational areas. Going back to your question about fighting, they couldn't operate in these operational areas unless, of course, it was an exception, SOE, fanny rolls, etc. And therefore, he had to present the war office with the research he'd done before the war. Because he, he knew this, he'd predicted this, it was very obvious. And he'd got Caroline Haslett roped in. She used to go to the Surrey Downs and watch the AA command doing their job and concluded she was a, quite a formidable engineer and had a reputation between the walls of doing work with women and domestic gadgets. And she concluded that, yes, she thought girls would be able to operate the machinery behind the guns, but obviously, you know, with the exception, that is, of firing the guns. And this was sort of dancing on semantics. I mean, Pyle himself said he was a lot of stupidity sort of talked on this subject. Of course, girls could pull a trigger of a static gun. But as just mentioned earlier, if they did that, then that would no longer be manly. And that would also mean they were combatants. And the whole area of recruiting women was incredibly fraught. Public opinion did not welcome it. You know, sticklers of our age, Sam, would have been apoplectic, you know, with girls 
our daughters, presumably Virgo intacto, being released from the confines of domesticity for the first times in their life. Absolutely not. And also putting a girl in a uniform, heaven forbid, that was Bolshevik. You know, anybody might try and fiddle with her. And quite a few did, I can assure you. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a kind of amazing, the, the sort of recruitment materials. I mean, there's a quote you have from a, I think it's one of the recruitment films, says, you know, if you're a good girl, they will give you a great big gunny wunny. Yeah, that was the Leslie Howard film, the last film Leslie Howard made before he died. It was a massive hit. It's extraordinary to think it was that successful because I tried watching it. And I tell you what, I felt I'd done my homework at the end of it. People were going in their droves to cinemas in 1943 to see this film. And I can't remember the actress, had a stellar cast who said that line. But the point being is by this stage in the war, the ATS, so j just quickly... April 1941, girls suddenly are allowed on gun sites. Wit woo. They can actually be in an operational area where they can be and were potentially fatally injured by falling shrapnel. They couldn't fire the gun, but they could be killed by the falling shrapnel. But this was highly glamorous. If you think of the cult of hero that was growing during the Second World War, a lot of girls had felt really stifled at home often. And a couple of the women in my book, Penny in particular, God bless her, her beautiful Ronald had gone off as a submariner and promptly died off the coast of Malta. You know, she's sitting and answering the telephone in ARP. She's like, Look at this. Actually, I want a slice of the action, thanks awfully. And all the sticklers, our parents say no, everyone says no. And finally, what happens is, you know, there's a realisation with the backs against the wall, we need to recruit girls, we're going to get them into operational areas. But there's this lag where the services the girls want to go into is not the biggest one, ATS, which is serving AA Command. AA Command sucks up thousands of girls, you know, to, to man and the term sticks, it's gun sites. And what they're doing there is they're sort of spotting, aren't they? They've got this sort of scope they look through and they've got to calculate very quickly if the thing's over there, you know, the incoming enemy yeah. plane or whatever, you know, later V1, it's going to be over there in four minutes so, or 30 seconds. So you have to shoot the gun like now. Yes, exactly. So, and by the end of the war, you have radar, you have predictors, the Vickers predictor, you have height finders, they're pretty high tech with elements of computerization machinery. And these girls underwent rigorous selection tests. That was the other thing. Pyle, far-seeing Pyle, worked out that he needed tests to prove just how incapable the men were he was getting. Some of them, obviously, some were very good in Royal Artillery. But, and so he got a Cambridge psychologist to help him work out these tests, Bartlett. And the same tests, of course, women were subjected to when they were started being recruited from April 1941. So it goes from being this sort of class hidebound, pretty horrific service where, you know, posh women are, are bossing around young girls to something that is actually working out a woman's raw ability. A lot of these girls, the ATS couldn't choose. Unlike the WAF and the Wrens, predominantly relied on volunteers. In fact, the Wrens was at the smallest service by far and only ever had volunteers. It was a sort of smart place for girls to serve and had a very nice French uniform tucked in at the waist. The WAFs, again, majority were volunteers. The ATS relied heavily on conscription, introduced 80 years ago in December. And therefore, it had a broader social range. Women who hadn't been at school much sort of went to their elementary school. And like Vera, who's wonderful, she's in my book, she's 99, still alive, domestic servant, farmhand, got bombed in Plymouth by the Blitz and thought, hell, hell with this, I'm off to war. And actually finds herself as promoted to number one on the predict. Oh, I can't do that, she said. 
you damn well can love and off she goes and she and they're ordering and Lady Martha she's posh I mean you've got to have a few poshos in the army and she of course they tried to promote her immediately fast tracker to officer and she was like no I want to serve on a gun site and she's made a subaltern and she's actually training alongside the men in devises and she's issuing by the end of the war against the V1 she's issuing the command to men to fire the gun so these are the original drone girls and there's I think no coincidence that in America now there's a disproportionate number of female soldiers recruited into operating drones. They're called the drone queens. I don't know what they feel about this title. And I think that's probably a hangover because Eisenhower copied our mixed batteries because they were so successful. Yeah. Now, you do, do mention the kind of class thing. There's a kind of bit of inter-service needle between the ATS and the FANY, which even back then people were giggling that it was called yeah. Fanny. Um, <laughs> well, but yeah. What was the difference between the ATS and the Fannies? Yeah, this is a nightmare. I tried to get into the Fanny archive, which was very, unlike NAM, the National Army Museum, was a stickler about COVID protocol. So I couldn't get into Fanny archive, but I did get quite a lot of Fanny information from actually the National Army Museum and elsewhere. There was a huge set two between Helen Gwynne Vaughan. You can imagine the sort of woman who's asked and is pushing to set up this ATS in 1938. For me, it took, I did quite a lot of research on this. You're a conservative, but you're also promoting, seeking to promote women in the most sexist, regimented, hierarchical organisation there is, really. So it's kind of a paradoxical role. So there she is, really brass-necked and pretty unpopular. And of course, the fanny are this exception and military organisations hate exceptions. Unlike the WAC, the, basically the Women's Army in the First World War, the fanny continued in between the wars. In peacetimes, it was deemed that we didn't need women in uniform. Heaven yeah, for so, listeners who but, don't know, what, what, what is the fanny? Oh, sorry. sorry. Yes, the fanny, um, established in 1907, an elite voluntary organisation, first aid nursing yeomanry. The initial point of it is for women to ride out and collect and save men from the battlefield. So it's got a sort of thrilling aspect of being near the action. It also, early on, baked in is that idea of transportation. Initially, members had to own their own horse to give you some idea about the elite aspect, pay for their membership, etc. The horse quickly gave way to an ambulance in the First World War. But this voluntary organisation was extant between the wars, and that meant it had an ideal number of tightly honed, very loyal women with experience, especially in transportation, who could immediately be called upon. And therefore, Dame Helen, who was instigating this big, much bigger ATS, had to work out what to do and how she could best work with the fanny, given they had the experience, they had four to 500 in their transport corps alone. And of course, the Gamwell sisters who ran the fanny at this time were absolutely terrifying, sort of fighters and farmers. They'd cut their teeth in South Africa. They didn't want to be told what to do by Dame Helen. So there was a, a massive argument. Of course, the war office just went, oh, women arguing, you know, sort of derided it as some kind of sexist tiff. But actually, both sides has got to be an element of sympathy. The fanny, funnily enough, there were um, similarities I found doing this research to when I was doing research for a previous book involving Bletchley female Bletchley veterans because it was a closed social network that the fanny recruited from. And there are two fanny in my book. They eventually, reluctantly, came under the umbrella of the ATS. They had to, really, because in war you have to pay your girls. You, can't, you know, volunteering doesn't really work if you want to instil proper military discipline. And therefore it relinquished its voluntary 
identity from 1940 and actually there was a fusion between the fanny and the ATS on the on the motorized front from earlier from 1939 and that incidentally Camberley for instance where the queen our current queen trained there was a huge number of fanny there so it's very appropriate that they would have been in charge. So she was ATS wasn't she? She was ATS but there were a lot of fanny at Camberley I know that because one of the veterans in my book Barbara also trained in Camberley but uh, bless the queen but I was there two years before her thanks very much. She's quite, she's quite clear. All these women, by the way, can patronise Her Majesty because they're all older. Every woman in my book is older than the Queen. And it's quite weird. Everyone else in the media at the moment is revering the Queen, her longevity, her standing. And they're like, yeah, little girl. I actually did her bit at the end. You know, it's very <laughs> funny. It's kind of quite surreal. But yeah, the fanny. And, and as Barbara says, well, I always wanted to drive because, well, only upper bracket girls did that sort of thing. And I wanted a bit of the action. You know, really being in, behind the wheel was the thrilling thing to do. And the only thrilling thing to do available, especially before women were allowed onto gun sites and into intelligence and things like that. Well, I can't your, remember your question. Your, I was so you, carried you know, away you're talking with about the service rivalry, which you, you've mm. explained very well. But that mention of, you know, driving ambulances is the exciting thing to do. I mean, very early in your book, one of your studies is this, I think she's called Olivia, isn't she? Yeah, Who, she is. You know, her war starts on the continent, driving an ambulance. Mm. I mean, she, she's got an extraordinary story. I mean, she's much, much closer to the action much earlier on than almost anybody else, isn't she? Yeah, and it's funny, you know, when you're doing an oral history, and this is the third I've done, you're relying on the women's stories, also dependent. I mean, this is in no way representative of women who served in the Second World War. For a start, these women are all outliers. They're physical and mental outliers. They're still alive and cognitive and able in their very, very late 90s. In fact, Olivia has subsequently died. She died in August. But she was 102 fielding my questions. You know, these are extraordinary women. And as Anne, one of the other late women in my book, she died in July. I've never had women die on me before. That was a different thing. But anyway, but she said, I think our generation was pretty run of the mill. But there is a danger when you're telling the story of the Second World War through social outliers who are, by definition, pretty much exceptional. If you ask gentrotricians, they'll say people who get that far in life do tend to have exceptional characteristics. There's a tendency then to have this idea that that whole generation was exceptional, if that makes sense. So just with that caveat aside, Olivia provided me with the gusto and the oomph that the book needed. And without her, I don't know what I would have done. I couldn't find an extant member of the ATS who served during the occupation of France. They were there in a pretty administrative capacity in Paris, with the telephone exchange, etc., and food, cooks at that time. But I couldn't find one, and I did look hard. So Olivia delivered for me in spades because she wore khaki, but she wore French khaki. And she absolutely reminded me several times, despite having, by the end, mild dementia. She had a very good personal archive, though, it must be said. I was in the French equivalent of the fanny, she kept on saying. She was posh. It was, in fact the Section Sanitaire Automobile Feminine, SSAF. You need a couple of posh girls in, in a war book, in the beginning of the war, because they were the ones who were able to, I suppose, access action, which a lot of women wanted to, but couldn't and didn't have the means and wouldn't have even presumed to. Olivia sits there, you know, fourth daughter in this big house, thinking, well, what's happened to my year off? I was meant to go to France and nothing's happening in this phony war. And literally takes, it's pretty much ignored, you know, in that negligent way that upper class people are with their children. It just thinks, so I'll do it. I'm going to go across to the continent. So off she goes in January 1940 and gets within a month, thinks, oh, looks like there might be something going on here. I want to fight for England. But she's in France. So, you know, joins the SSAF. 
and has that extraordinary sort of, you know, I said upper class chutzpah, you'd call it really, and was clearly fearless. I mean, this was evident in all the documentation I saw. She was driving into the Blitzkrieg, which was coming down as obviously took us by surprise from northeastern France. She was hammering towards Rommel in her ambulance. She had hardly passed the training. Well, I did. It was quite challenging outside Versailles, you know, doing mechanics in French. I didn't really understand the first thing about an engine in English, you know, but off she goes with, she doesn't pass her Red Cross tests and exams because it all comes so soon. Suddenly the Germans are coming. And so she's going into the eye of the storm and she sends extraordinary letters home. She has this wonderful archive. And what's interesting when you're working, a couple of the women had quite poor memory loss, but if they had a strong archive, I went with their story anyway, and, and Olivia was one of them. But what's very interesting about the memory is what it holds on to. And she... Most of the rest of her life, she kind of waved away with her hand, literally like that. But it was so still in clear colour. She looked at me and she went, I've been expecting you, she said, when I came in the room, aged 102. She said, and you want to know about when the Germans came and I was in France, you know, and she could still tell me, pick out detail. She couldn't remember 10 years ago. She'd done a wonderful interview, it's got to be said, a recorded interview about 10 years ago, so I also could use that. But just how important it was for these girls from whatever class to be knocked out of their preordained pedestrian life. So she goes in and when you're driving an ambulance, if you've got injured personnel, which she had in her ambulance, you're not allowed to stop. So it doesn't matter if you're being strafed overhead. The rule is you don't stop. You keep your foot on the pedal. And that's one of the reasons why she was awarded the Croix de Guerre. And it arrived a couple of months after the capitulation of the French, retrospectively, from Vigan. How do I say his name? Come on, Olivia would really scold me for having poor French. He was the military commander when France falled. Vigan. Vigan. They Come, your listeners will know. Your listeners will know. They'll know correct you if need be. Anyway, he, retrospectively, a much maligned because he's initially tries to make a go of this Vichy France, but he awards Olivia, and I've seen all the paperwork, he awards Olivia this Croix de Guerre for her exceptional bravery. And not only does she look after, attend French soldiers, but also German ones, she's got this Red Cross. And she remembers them being very, very young, interestingly, and absolutely fanatical. Mein Führer, mein Führer. Of course, being a posh girl, she also spoke German and has spent a bit of time in Munich. So that was no problem. She could asked them what their last wish was. Mein Führer, mein Führer was their last wish, she said. And then she said, actually, most terrifying of all was when suddenly they were like, right, you're, you're not welcome any longer because we, we've just capitulated. You know, we're, we're about to go and make peace. So you've got to sugar off. You're in, you know, you're British. And she's like, crikey, she had to basically cross half of France alone. And that for me was very interesting because I think it's kind of tropey now, isn't it? The way we go on and on about our heroes here in Britain. And we forget, you know, the complexity and the compromises of being in Europe during the war and France on the move, you know, from above, apparently, it just looked like somebody had kicked over an anthill. Yes, I got as Sidney Zuberi said that, didn't he? Yeah, he absolutely did, plane. yeah. And she comes back and she ends up, you know, a sort of aide to Charles de Gaulle, which is... Yeah, extraordinary. But also it's such but she just looks small... him up in the phone book or worse that effect, doesn't she? Is that, I mean, the story of how this, you know, posh girl kind of gets back in her ambulance, drives across the country, hops on a sort of troop ship yeah. or whatever just, it is. Just as the first troop ship she gets on, which is British, they kick her off because she's a woman and they don't have accommodation for women. She's like, what? That's yes, very just, chivalrous. You know... <laughs> yeah, but she finds her way back. She finds, is it a flyer or something? Just saying, you know, we've got this chap de Gaulle here who's going to be the free French. And yeah. she kind of just turns up and knocks on his door, doesn't she? She absolutely does. Yeah, well, two things. One is she's wearing a French uniform, remember? So when she arrives in Plymouth, 
She's given one of these pamphlets printed, by the way, with the Ministry of Information. I think we always think of the set two that occurs a bit later between Charles de Gaulle and, and Churchill. But actually, initially, Churchill's like, well, you're, you're all I've got, you know, so I'll back you. But he's taken aback by just how few people stick with or even begin with de Gaulle. We know later on the movement gathers momentum, but all those French that come over in the little boats, you know, a bit belatedly, they are rescued off the Dunkirk beaches tactlessly last. You know, most of them go back to France. He's got this skeletal operation. And as Olivia constantly reminded me in the depths of old age, again, what the memory loss still holds on to, he spoke terrible, terrible English. She loved that. He had terrible English de Gaulle. Awful. None of them seemed to be able to speak English and none of us could speak French. So there she was, incredibly useful, you know, and she, she's tiny, tiny, tiny woman. And of course, de Gaulle is this, this giant man. Six it was, four, she kept on going like this, putting her hand, you know, I was just down there. But the other thing that was interesting about Olivia, and I think was, again, was informative about not just the war, but her whole experience in the framework and, and, and reference points of her life. Her parents obviously desperately wanted a son and she was the disappointing fourth daughter. And even though she can drive, and she, by the way, she gets her father's Woolsey, you know, she, he's a chairman of some big bank, and she commandeers it and drives de Gaulle and his men. And there's letters, you know, detailing a bit of what she does. It's all secret. And she's basically, he's trying to desperately recruit any French that remain in Britain at this time. And there's a degree of urgency because we know that some of them are recovering. They've come over from, from Dunkirk and he wants to keep them in the country. So Olivia's very useful. Her timing is perfect. Anna's course is a translator, but still... She kept on saying to me, oh, I was right down there. I was just a girl. I'm like, I couldn't type. I couldn't type. And I'm like, but you spoke two languages and, and you gave him a car. But still, she held on to this idea of her inferiority. It was fascinating, actually, even though she's then awarded the Croix de Guerre. And it's only then, incidentally, that her parents take any interest. When she gets back to Britain and she can't wait to ring her dad because she's actually been registered missing and she's, you know, been bombed. And, and he went, oh, we always knew you'd come back. It was so, this is before the Blitz, before we have this idea of, you know, a total war and collateral damage. It's sort of dismissive. Her brother-in-law had, you know, been hit during the evacuation of Dunkirk. He arrives back on the sort of back of a door, I think, you know, so that was where the family focus was. But it was much later when the, the Croix de Guerre arrives and she's in the local paper. And then she has to say to her mum, do shut up about, you know, in one of our letters. Mummy, stop telling everyone. You know, so <laughs> there was, and that... I do love Olivia. She was a cracker, man. Tell you what, so one of the great sadnesses when you write a book, you want to take the, the great fun thing if you do living history, oral history, is having the survivors with you. You know, it's not many people who are, are bothering much with the over 95s, you know, or giving them always huge numbers of people looking after them, but putting them on stage, giving them a voice. And I tell you what, Sam, the body withers, but the ego persists. You know, some of them are absolutely loving it. Others are loving picking through my grammar. Barbara at the weekend. I just have to point out to you that I think controller commandant on page 90, whatever, should be capitalised like this. And I'm like, really, Barbara? Daphne rings. I'm sorry, but I don't think that's the number of my regiment. Did I say really it was 16th? Yes, Daphne. I've decided it might have been the 65th regiment like this. You know, they're all totally into it. Like, <laughs> and it's interesting because they do have real agency. One of the other women who died... Four died out of that 17 in the last year and was Penny. And she was terrific, Penny. She was a great communicator, beautiful. She was had sort of ballroom poise, you know. She was a ballroom dancer and just great. She was from London, a real Londoner. 
And she goes off. It was her boyfriend who dies. And off she goes. She signs up. She was, I was only a clerk, she says. But even just living in barracks, this for these girls who had never left home, oh, couldn't believe it when I saw other girls knockers. You know, she was wonderful. Like, and the fear of lesbians. You know, and actually, she said, well, I, this woman was getting very close to me. And one of the other girls in the barracks said, oh, we better watch out for her. She's a Glaswegian. She's a leather. And I remember then the copy editor said, you need to take that word out, Tessa. It's offensive, the word leather. But I'm like, but that's Penny quoting a Glaswegian in 1941. And I said, and if that, I think if that's what they called a lesbian in the barracks, and not, then we need to keep that in the book. I was like having this kind of, you know, it's, it's not even history, Penny saying it? it. Yeah, it's history. And I think there's a, there's a bit of a danger there. Just, you know, I left that in. But Penny now, I couldn't check with Penny what she wanted because she, she died. And, and actually, she was the first woman who died. And if I had my money on Penny living, I'd have said, you know, but life's absolutely a lottery at that age. And I, I remember so vividly her waving out the window to me. And then we'd talk often on the phone and suddenly the phone rings out. And two days later, I hear she's died. And the woman in her care home said, oh, she wasn't in a care home. She was in a sheltered accommodation. She said, oh, you know, she had a wonderful innings and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but she also had agency. She was still relevant. She's, she's alive. She's, she's in my book. You know, and I think that's one of the key I know this key to, to longevity is about having agency it's about still being relevant and I think that's what people go why are you so obsessed because I do worry that lionizing the second world war you know it's kind of the whole brexit you know tub thumpy stuff but actually for me much bigger than that is giving these just just to watch them you know literally expand you know just grow it's been it's a great joy five are coming to an event in the National Army Museum this Wednesday despite covid despite the nightmare of traveling age 98 and I think I just love capturing their voices. I love giving them a say. I love That's it. Amazing. It's, I would say, a passion. It's amazing to have them before they go, as it were. Now, this business of living in barracks, I mean, I'm kind of interested in what the setup was. You know, as you said, the idea of, you know, putting women in uniform, this is Soviet, and I think there's a, a thing you quote quite early on saying, you know, no frills and flower, flounces, no lipstick, no powder. They were quite specific about things. Yeah. But the inductions... I mean, yeah, half of them had, had their teeth pulled out. <laughs> Awful. <What? laughs> Come on, this is the great leveller. This is where you see really the beginnings of our much-beloved NHS. This is where the People's War bleeds into this post-war vision of an equal Britain. I can tell you, none of them wanted their teeth pulled out and they all had were stabbed to death. They're very good at taking their vaccines because they all had their inoculations. In fact, I was reading through Joan. Some of them had wonderful letters, Sam, all written home. You know, Joan said, I don't think you should include that in the book. It doesn't sound politically correct because she's always browned off. Where did that expression come from? We had this terrible worry. We're not sure still. But anyway, you know, they're constantly browned off with everything that's going on. And, but there were so many similarities, weirdly, because I think COVID is so different. It's about isolation and not about camaraderie and living together. But, you know, there was a shortage of loo roll. There was these terrible inoculations that made their arms come up. Most of them were never going to serve abroad. That was hugely contentious, recruiting women abroad and didn't really come in except for the fanny until a much later and to back up the Allied soldiers across post-D-Day. Then you've got two million men on the continent. Well, you need some kind of female coordination, don't you? And that's when it's very, very unpopular. And again, women have to be drafted. There's not going to be enough parents and husbands who give permission for their wives or daughters to serve abroad, so they're drafted in. But it's the last thing people want at the end of the war, the idea of their precious children going over and being outnumbered by Allied soldiers. But that wasn't the question you asked me. Barrack life. Yeah, so barrack life, yeah, it was incredibly regimented and it was one size fits all. 
and the medical was horrific. You know, the scabies, anything like that, knits, you were in isolation, you must be free from infection. But of course, it's worth bearing in mind that in the First World War, it was the first big conflict on the Western Front where more people had died from bullets than infection. Not so, incidentally, on the Eastern Front, Serbia, Romania, taken out by typhus and things like that. So it's understandable, really, where this massive obsession with health and hygiene came from. What did they pull the teeth out, incidentally? That's a really annoying question because I don't have an immediate answer for you, Uh, Sam. Not all the teeth, but two or three or something. Yeah, two. It was a significant number and she was in considerable discomfort. This was more. She still remembers it very vividly and she's 102. Well, I presumed it was sort of a, a regimental good dental hygiene. You know, you don't want people getting abscesses or anything that might in in some way impact on their service. The bigger, much the bigger concern, although dentistry was one of them, was um, women's menstrual pain. That was considered to literally be a pain for the services. It wasn't something the army was used to really having to deal with. And days lost to menstrual pain was a big deal. They were asked often in their interviews, you know, do you suffer from mental pain? And the remedy for this was physical exercise. A lot of PT, all of them had to do this horrific PT day in, day out. In fact, one of the women in my book was a PT instructor. Not popular, I can assure you. I won't surprise you to know that Princess Elizabeth, I looked in the archive, or all the notes, she was exempt from doing PT. But I don't think it would have been a great look, really, in these tight, slug-coloured shorts and a small air text. <laughs> the heir to the throne hopping up and down on a beach, you know, which is what the rest of them were being asked to do. So she escaped PT. But I think it was a sort of leveller, the medical absolutely everyone whether you were lady martha bruce you you had everything examined you were given the full once over free from infection i presume it was the equivalent with dentistry but for me this was really the way in which the approach the comprehensive approach provides in many ways a blueprint for what comes next post second world war where we're going to look after the people we're going to look after our soldiers in the second world war and now we're going to look after the people it's that kind of mentality it's a national government after all now Obviously, there's one concern is the sort of physical infection being yeah. a danger to the army. The other thing, obviously, that people were very anxious about was sort of moral contagion and moral infection. Mm. There was a sort of worry that if you had women involved in male combat units, yeah. you know, hanky-panky at the very least would <laughs> take place and that these women themselves would be morally corrupted and so forth. I mean, what was the take on that, all that and were these fears borne out? I think that, funnily enough, was one of the main fears. The, the reticence behind women signing up. And, and there were girls like Joan and Daphne desperate to sign up and really couldn't until the law changed because their parents didn't want them to. You know, I think Joan would have got her way in the end, but it was when the law changed and then they could say, even if they were still younger than 20 was the initial age of conscription, it was dropped to 19. Even if they were younger than that, the logic was, look, if I sign up now, mum, I can choose the job I want. And one of the main reasons was this hardening of our future wives and mothers. And that wasn't just about sort of uncomfortable living in barracks, etc. But actually their exposure to the opposite sex out of the confines of the private sphere, their own homes. And with some reason, you know, you do have by 1942 over a million foreign servicemen coming into Britain, let alone our own. If you think of the Americans over here and oversexed, you know, there was we were highly anxious, venereal rates literally skyrocket. They go through the roof and what really, I had such a funny time reading women's magazines, trying to alert women, you know, to these terrible things like gonorrhea, you know, and really the only way of preventing is to abstain. But what was fascinating was the emphasis that was placed on girls to maintain their morality. Men avoid advancing bullets and women have to avoid 
advancing men. There was this inquiry, a Markham inquiry, and the, the whole ruse was in 1942, you know, it was about looking into the conditions of the female services. It was pretty much inspired because of rumours derogatory to the service, particularly the ATS, a big heft of snobbism, of course, with the calibre of recruit that was coming in. And of course, nobody was checking up on the morality of the British army, the men. But then so it was really unfair. This was this was all on the girls and particularly on those girls who were chosen, selected or allowed to serve abroad. Anne, who was a vicar's daughter and, you know, pretty scary. I, I went to interview her and I tell you what, I was on my toes. Actually, after the interview, I rung her up. First of all, I interview her and I noticed that she's given an armband. She's got poor sight, so she doesn't get to do the job she wants. And instead, she's promoted to corporal because she's quite posh and is given this red arm. She has to go and police girls older than her and stop them canoodling outside pubs and so forth around her barracks in Wrexham. That's one of her jobs. And if they're caught cuddling, then they're put on a charge. And then when she's interviewed to go abroad in 1944, they give her the once over to make sure she's going to be able to contain male advances because women are going to be so heavily outnumbered when they arrive on the continent. And then, of course, she goes to Italy and she does have to contain male advances. You know, they engineer it so that at the end of a night she'll get in a truck and she has to sit on their knee and then they'll be feeling her up. And she'll be like, oh, don't do that. Oh, please, please. We haven't seen a woman for so long. And these are men who fought up through North Africa, came via Sicily. You know, there you can't. I mean, I, I, I was going to say something terrible there in the current climate. But, you know, Anne sort of said, oh, I can't really blame them for wanting a fumble. You know, I mean, she didn't say that quite. But the tone of it was that. And then she rings me two weeks later and says, I think you asked me too many questions about sex. And I said, well, because it, it's fascinating and it really worried the government back at home. It was a massive deal because, of course, especially in occupied Germany where Joan served, you weren't allowed to fraternise with the locals. So you're asking men to serve and you're not going to give them any allied women. You've got to have allied women in Germany too. But then what about the relations between Well, that was a slightly... I mean, you, in that section of the book, you do say something to the effect that you know, they were very keen on sending the ATS to Germany to keep British men away from German women. Indeed. Which sounds a little pimpy to me. Well, it is pimpy, but at the same time, they don't want the women to actually do anything and they're heavily guarded in their barracks and they can go out and dance and so forth, but you cannot cross the line. As Anne said, God, paragraph 11. Paragraph 11 was terrifying. If we got pregnant, that was it. It, out. You know, and there was no, she said, there was no caution, really. Withdrawal. You know, you just didn't have sex. And there's Jean. Jean was 18. She goes out as a fanny early on because fanny's got out earlier to the continent. Her letters home to her sister, she's constantly lamenting men pestering her. She's being pestered all the time. I feel really sorry, but, you know, she doesn't... And also that generation and that class, in a sense, with Jean, and she talks about this quite openly now, about feeling that it was somehow her fault She'd done something wrong. Why does this man want to kiss me or grope me? You know, have I led him on? And the onus was 100% on women. It was women who became promiscuous, women who were immoral, and ultimately women who were kicked out if they got pregnant. Grace and some of them were so innocent they didn't even know what they were guarding against. Grace, who, wonderful, she's a former domestic servant. Her mum died when she was 11. She's on a gun site. And her friend, they're all really together, there's three of them on the height finder, absolutely, Clark, Bottom, Crow. And suddenly Kathleen bots off, off, she's sacked. Well, she's pregnant. But Grace said, I don't know. Why didn't she just keep her knees together, says Grace. And I don't know how she got pregnant. We weren't allowed. We were in separate huts. I mean, you, I met my Bob and we fell in love by looking in each other's eyes. You know, well, obviously Kathleen Bott didn't have 
good and quite, quite the equivalent man. You know, so there was, to me, it was like, there were huge undercurrents of me too. But what, what was interesting was the women, even when it's in their letters, even Lady Martha Bruce, who later, but pretty scary by the way as well. I've had quite a scary year. She's a lieutenant colonel. She was 100 yesterday. And she even writes in a letter home to her mother, Countess of Elgin, oh, dirty old men like this, of the, of the men on her gun side. But if I ask them now, most of them, really, with the exception of Jean, sort of wave it away, ring me up, I don't want to talk about this. And I think there's two reasons there. One is it fades with time, doesn't it? You know, that kind of idea. And also that the idea of soldiers as heroes. These men are dying, you know, and, and Anne's biggest recollection is she goes out on, on a ship, a requisitioned cruise liner with lovely love at scouts, and then is visiting them two weeks later and they're all maimed and blinded. And, 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 and so how can you... How can you then berate these same men for the fumble they wanted? You know, so there is that hero problem, the halo effect of being a soldier. And also, I think, decades of commemoration. You don't want to tamper with that. If you're a veteran now, age 98, 100, and you're having your moment in the sun, you don't want some, you know, silly old feminist called Tessa with blonde hair asking you about, you know, an agenda that they really feel is a contemporary one, not one to do with their generation. And that generation, obviously, they went through the war, they had these experiences that put them into, you know, a kind of mixed social environment into mm. a new kind of institutional structure. You know, they very much shook up the social expectations and social boxes people were in. What was the effect on that post-war, on their lives, their careers, their attitudes to life? People always say the First World War has this great, significant feminist watershed, you know, emancipation of some women in 1918. Their utility has been proven. In the Second World War, there is no equivalent immediate feminist watershed. The Beveridge Report makes it very clear, you know, go back and breed, girls, you know, and the emphasis on the hero returning male soldiers and jobs for the boys. And girls, you know, the one accession to girls is allowing them to actually be able to choose their own clothes, new clothes for civilian street, whereas the men get this kind of suit given to them. And that's, of course, about reiterating their femininity. It's been a big, big fear is they're going to lose their femininity if they serve in military uniform. So we need to reinstate that. The war women in service, women in uniform, that's seen as an anomaly, something that had to be done, but would really rather hadn't. And for huge numbers of them, most of the women in my book acknowledged that life post-war, many, for many, that was 1946, the likes serving overseas, the likes of Joan and Anne, it was an extraordinary anticlimax. They lose their status, they lose their belonging, they lose the companionship, they're back at home with mum and dad. And in the letters home, Jean writing back from Italy, Joan writing back from Germany, properly anxious about what they're going to do. The options for women are limited and they're very aware of it. And all of them respond differently to this. Some get, we know that this is the great year for marriage. So while there is a concern about what they'll do, there's also a concern there aren't so many men. And we know that they jump down the aisle, women of that generation and men, head down the aisle younger than ever before. The average bride's age falls to 22, led, of course, by... Her Royal Highness Elizabeth in 1948. I think she's sort of peaches and cream 20 or something, isn't she? 21. So there's two pressures playing off and society is heavily backing these young girls as wives and mothers and most of them are biddable. And we know that the late 40s, 50s are a couple of the most you know, properly conventional decades. But I don't think the genie is ever fully put back in the bottle. And I don't think it's a coincidence, and most of these women would agree with me, that they give birth to the bra burners who emerge in the 1960s. And there's a stone in the shoe for most of these women, and a few are exceptions. You know, Nanza, she only had one child, and she, she was always a career woman, actually. She was a reluctant recruit, but she's a working mother. And her daughter's very interesting, Linda. She says, gosh, yes, I was the only girl at school with a working mother. You know, but there was no home-baked stuff, but I did learn about 
you know, that it was okay to be ambitious. Martha, who's this is unconventional within the convention of the military, never marries, so she wasn't constrained by that institution, and actually carves this formidable and pioneering role in the Scottish Territorial Army, ends up a lieutenant colonel, is awarded an OBE. So they find their way. Betty Webb, who has subsequently been awarded an MBE for services to Bletchley Park, she has a cameo in this book, God, I love her. She was like my PA, age 98. She found me all these extraordinary women. Because the problem is, you'll get the WRAC Association, who have been brilliant, incidentally, but they have women on their books who are proud of their service, who want to remember it. And I wanted other women who maybe don't always bang on about being in the Second World War, like Nanza, who's, who's Betty's neighbour and friend. But Betty, for instance, again, marries late, but she, she returns to the Territorial Army in the 60s, and it's then she has the gumption to push for equal pay. So it's not during the war. All of them are paid a third less than men in the war, you know, even if they're doing the same job. That's a given complain. But as Barbara says, sorry to always take off Barbara's voice. I feel like that's a must sound patronise. She looks wonderful, your cracks, and she's an absolute gift. And she does patronise the Queen, so damn you, Barbara. But she says to me, complain? Who would we complain to? You like, because she like, men were, were paid more for driving ammunition. She was a driver, one of the big trucks. But, you know, she wasn't paid more for ammunition. And then they had special flags, the men when they were driving ammunition. The girls didn't get special flags. And then she marries a policeman. And, um, of course, if you're a policeman's wife, until the 60s, you can't work. So it's jolly lucky I like looking after children, she says. Also, I did the audiobook. So I started at the beginning of the audiobook. I started doing some of the accents, you know, six, six different posh accents, you know, and then six. And that was, I was like, oh, my God, have I got to carry on these accents? But I didn't, you know, you want to kind of give the book a bit of life, don't you? So, so now it's like, don't look at me like that, Sam. <laughs> We're on Zoom, incidentally, for anyone listening. He's looking at me, like, with pity. <laughs> admiration. Yeah, that's my admiration face. Um, can, can I say, it's just one, one detail in the book that, I mean, we, we're running out of time, but it's sort of rare in a war book. But you say there's only one actual war wound, only one injury that's sustained in the course of this book. And yeah. it's like a potato peeler or something. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend things happen that don't happen. Although it ought to be said, Daphne, of course, if you die, you're not still going to be able to tell your story, are you? Daphne's best school friend dies on a gun site. Shrapnel, Dorothy, dies aged 18. Anne, 17 of her colleagues, fall out of the sky and are Lancaster going back to Italy. So there's plenty collateral damage and women who die. But in terms of injuries sustained by enemy fire, no, maybe the government was right that the main thing they were worried about was the uh, sexual libido of allied servicemen, not in fact jerry bullets, when <laughs> these endless conversations in Parliament. Perhaps they had a point, you know, that actually pregnancy was the bigger danger <laughs> than uh, a certainly Grace said, oh gosh, you'd rather take a jerry bullet than get pregnant. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that was the fear. But yeah, the job that no one wanted was cooking. There were two, Diana, she's a gift. She's coming to the event, actually, on um, Wednesday. She badly scalded herself, carrying a vast bucket of tea for men, of course. And then she almost decapitated her thumb on a giant potato peeler. This is sort of industrial level food making, Churchill's beef, you know, this obsession that I'm married to Romanian and he always laughs and he goes, oh, Britain's war, you had to eat spam, you know, and I'm like, well, if Churchill has had his way, we wouldn't have even had to do that, to be honest, Dan, do you know, because there was this emphasis on you've got to feed an army on their stomach and actually the food was pretty bad, but there was plenty of it. Initially, they thought women in the ATS could be given less food than the men. Uh Uh-uh, that went down like a lead balloon and apparently there was going to be salad. Salad, says Vera? It was carrot and cabbage, that's not salad like this anyway yeah so that was the only physical injury that I unpicked from the 17 women in my book although actually Olivia was in Café de Paris the night that it was bombed in 1941 a March 
when it takes out snake hips, obviously very famously or infamously and, and, and kills a huge number. And she was stone deaf. When I met her, I had to write down all my questions. Her hearing was impacted ever since. In fact, you just spotted a mistake there in the book, Sam, because I should have mentioned her as collateral. But the funny thing was, after she, that night, she was in Café de Paris and she walks out onto the street and very nearly gets run over by a bus, as you do. You know, she's so kind of taken in the moment of having survived that extraordinary <laughs> kind of... And then boom! Well, it's very lucky that she didn't get run over by yeah. a bus because she survived to talk to you. She did. I think, well, unfortunately, we're out of time. So I must say, Tessa Dunlop, thank you very much indeed. Army Girls is out, I think, now. It is. Thank you very very much. much. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.